Good morning. I'm Danny Martin, one of the leaders here at City on a Hill Church. Wonderful to see all of you here in person, and of course, great to be seen or heard later online by all of you who are watching online. We hope you can join us here at the Steeple Center soon. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, which we've been going through for the past few weeks here, the Apostle Paul wrote to one of the first ever Christian churches in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. Paul had helped start the church in Corinth about four years before writing this letter and had lived there for about a year and a half. He knew the Corinthians personally. He knew what temptations and challenges the city's culture presented, everything from sexual promiscuity to Greece's long history of philosopher-teachers, people like Aristotle, who we still know about today. Because of this history of traveling philosophers and because some training in philosophy was a normal part of anybody's formal education in that place and time, pretty much everybody in Corinth would have at least been familiar with the Greek philosophical or wisdom tradition. Philosophy, which comes from two words meaning the love of wisdom, was one of the ways Greek culture presented its people with its vision of the good life. This leads Paul multiple times in 1 Corinthians to contrast the Greek culture's ideas of wisdom with Jesus' idea of wisdom. Jesus' teachings looked unwise to the Greeks. After all, why would you forgive those who wronged you when you could take them to court and get paid? If you could sleep around, enjoy sexual pleasure with lots of different partners, why wouldn't you? Real teachers make real money. Apostle Paul, you aren't charging big fees to teach. It must be because you know you're not really a good teacher. The world of the time was saying, and the world today still says, that might makes right. Peace is achieved through gaining power and using that power to control others. But Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. That true peace is achieved by handing over power and control to God and trusting Him to lead us. So there was the worldly wisdom of the time represented by the Greek philosophies. This was at odds with the so-called foolishness of believing in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Believing his resurrection has implications for how we live and trusting God above all else. Our Bible text today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but the conversation about these two types of wisdom at odds with each other actually starts at the end of 1 Corinthians 2. The reason I'm telling you about something from a chapter I'm not technically preaching is that the chapters and verses in our Bibles were not originally in our Bibles. These were added between the 13th and 16th centuries by Jewish and Christian leaders so it would be easier to navigate the Bible. 
In a moment, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles. And it's going to be pretty easy for you to find where we're reading thanks to chapters and verses. However, these chapters and verses, because they were added later, don't entirely match up with the flow of the original language. Sometimes, a new chapter will interrupt a paragraph. It would be like if you were reading a novel. It was the best of times. It was the worst of chapter two. <laughs> and that's actually what happened at the end of 1 Corinthians 2 and the start of 1 Corinthians 3. Paul was smack dab in the middle of a discussion about two kinds of wisdom at odds. First, Paul talks about the kind of person who doesn't have God the Holy Spirit. And remember, it's God the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their own sin and their need for forgiveness. So Jesus' teachings often look foolish to this kind of unspiritual person. Second, Paul talks about the kind of person who does have God the Holy Spirit. And because this person knows God, they are, in God's eyes, outside of the purview of the world's ideas about wisdom. While the world may judge them and call them foolish, in the final analysis, it is actually the world that will be judged by God. Following Jesus in this life will look dumb to a lot of people. Until he judges the world, it will then be obvious that following Jesus is not dumb it is the wisest thing that any of us could do. So you've got the unspiritual person and the spiritual person from the end of 1 Corinthians 2, but there's a third category of person that Paul talks about starting in 1 Corinthians 3. Turn there with me, in your Bibles, if you will. 1 Corinthians 3. While you're getting there, I'll remind you that God wants to know you. And he wants you to seek him. And one of the best ways to know and seek him is through regular reading of his revealed words in the Bible. I hope you're reading it regularly by yourself, with your family, with your church family. Bible reading is one of the most important essential rhythms for our spiritual growth. It has tremendous meaning and wisdom for your life today. Before I go on, do I need to adjust this? Is this too much sound coming out of here from my moving around? Okay, I'm getting, no, I'm getting thumbs up. Okay. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Follow along in whatever Bible translation you have. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you that because of what Jesus has done for us and through your Holy Spirit, we are no longer unspiritual people, but spiritual people. Help us every day to cede control and power to you as we seek your aid against the things in this world and the things within us that are at odds with our new nature in you and the new lives that you've called us to. 
for any hearing these words now or later in person online who have not yet discovered their true life and God-given purpose in you. We pray for you to rescue them very soon. This we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The Apostle Paul said at the end of chapter 2 that there are unspiritual people, that's not good, and spiritual people, that's good. He's writing to Christians in this letter, so he is writing to spiritual people. But he says he can't talk to them like they're spiritual people. He has to talk to them like they're people of flesh, our translation says. Some translations will say worldly. The old King James says carnal. Flesh is closest to the Greek. But what does Paul mean? He calls the Corinthians brothers. That's masculine language in English. He means women and men, spiritual siblings. They are Christians. You may recall at the start of the letter in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul said that they are holy, yet called to be holy. Meaning, there was a gap between what the Corinthians were and what they were acting like. If there was a gap between what the Corinthians were, spiritual people, and what they were acting like, unspiritual people, then there can likewise be gaps between what we are and what we are acting like. If this is the case, as it is in some aspects of all of our lives, because we all struggle to let Jesus lead us in different ways, it doesn't mean that we aren't Christians, just as it didn't mean the Corinthians weren't Christians. But it does mean that Christians can live in such a way that we are not in step with God, and we are not getting to where God is leading on his schedule. The English preacher Alan Redpath said that the carnal or fleshly Christian is a child of God, born again, and on his way to heaven, but he is traveling third class. Would you like a direct flight on Delta, first class to your destination? Or, yes, here's your alternative, would you like to spend four days on a Greyhound, stopping every two hours for the bathroom, end up fist-fighting some drifter while you're changing buses in Albuquerque? I know that was weirdly specific. That didn't happen to me. <laughs> Paul says he has to address these saved, technically speaking, spiritual people as if they are fleshly, unspiritual people. They could have taken Delta. Some of them were. But most of them, in one way or another, were slogging it on the spiritual equivalent of a Greyhound bus. When Paul was with them in person, they were infants in Christ, spiritual babies. He gave these babies milk, he says in verse 2, meaning that his teachings were basic. The Corinthians weren't ready for solid spiritual food. By solid spiritual food, he does not mean secret beliefs. There are no secret Christian beliefs. If you want to know what our beliefs are, read your Bible. What Paul means by solid spiritual food is a deeper understanding of Christian beliefs, a more committed embodiment of them with a more significant long-term result for us 
and for those around us as we become more and more like a city on a hill. It reminds me of a one-liner by another great philosopher, Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, no, it's not I'll be back. It's not get to the chopper. Someone once asked Arnold back in his bodybuilding days, do you drink milk? And he famously replied, milk is for babies. <laughs> then he adds, when you're grown up, you have to drink beer. Okay, I didn't put that there. That's not our point. <laughs> milk is for spiritual babies. At some point in all of our lives, we survived on nothing but milk. Milk serves an essential function. Milk is not bad. It's just for babies. Paul is saying that he provided the Christian teachings and practices that Corinthians needed to grow spiritually while he was with them. His expectation was that after he left, as others taught them, as they studied the apostles' teachings and the Hebrew scriptures, as they lived the Christian life and devoted themselves to Jesus through prayer and spiritual disciplines, that they would become ready for solid food in the same way that our kids go from milk to solid food. Paul doesn't specify what the milk teachings are. However, the Hebrews author gives us a hint when he writes in Hebrews 5, starting in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, he means baptisms, and laying on of hands the resurrection of, dead, of the dead and eternal judgment. What are the milk teachings? According to the Hebrews author, if he means the same thing as Paul, repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands, that means praying for others, particularly for their healing or for their commission to Christian leadership, the resurrection and eternal judgment. We could do a whole sermon just talking about that list. But here's an important takeaway for our purposes here. He said it in Hebrews 5.14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Solid spiritual food. A deeper understanding of our beliefs, a more committed embodiment of them, is for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In a sermon some 30 years ago, John Piper said that if you want to eat the solid food of the word, you must exercise your spiritual senses so as to develop a mind that discerns between good and evil. One of the core aspects of sin is that it is an attempt to define good and evil on our own terms, not on God's. 
the Hebrews author tells us that if we want to go deeper in our walk with God, we must learn to live aligned with God's view of what is good and what is evil. Not just listing do's and don'ts, but in committing to the essential idea that God is the one who defines good and evil, not us. Because here's the thing. Bruce and I have been trying to warn you in this series, we are fast approaching teachings in 1 Corinthians that do not line up with the employee handbooks at your secular jobs. They don't line up with the worldly wisdom of 21st century America that leads many to say that Christians are backward, hateful, and foolish. Some of us here, inasmuch as we have adopted our culture's vision of wisdom or the good life, may be bugged at what appears socially regressive. Solid spiritual food is for those who have learned to embrace God's authority to define good and evil. Our culture says things like, who cares about X? Or, how could you think that? It's 2023. Get with the program. Or, in classic Midwest style, that's private. This is why Paul says that God's wisdom looks foolish to the unspiritual. And in some ways, it looks foolish to those Christians who are still living off of milk. The Corinthians had been taught by the Apostle Paul himself, the guy whose letters make up like a quarter of the whole New Testament. Christians have been studying his words as part of Scripture for thousands of years. That Paul, and he still says they were milk drinkers. But they were supposed to be moving towards solid spiritual food. Paul doesn't respond to this by saying, Oh, if only I had been a better apostle. You Corinthians wouldn't be a bunch of milk drinkers. They'd been given spiritual milk during the time that spiritual milk was appropriate. They should have been beyond milk. Enough time had passed. We don't want our kindergartners acting like toddlers. We don't want our middle schoolers acting like third graders. We want our grown adult children out of the house working a job, meeting their spouse, not hanging out playing Xbox like an unemployed 18-year-old. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Don't steal the sermon from me. Okay. In the same way, God does not want us stuck in spiritual arrested development. It's not just about what we understand intellectually. It's about what we allow to shape us, to help us discern good from evil. If you've been a Christian for 5, 10, 20 years, and you haven't finished your milk, it's time to finish your milk. Spit out that pacifier, start eating real food, wriggle out of the huggies, and put on your big kid pants. Because Jesus calls us away from half-hearted commitment of being spiritual yet fleshly. I hope that all of us here have a daily personal rhythm of time with God in his word and prayer. I hope that you, or all of us, will find a way to use those blessed practices that we've talked about.
to bless others here and outside of these walls. And if you haven't, we are happy to help you find ways of doing that. There are many. I hope that we will all connect with a city group, that we will find church family to share life with, people to lean on in hard times, celebrate with in good. And if you haven't, write that down on that Connect card. Wave me or Bruce down. We're happy to help connect you to a group. Because God has set a banquet before us. We sell ourselves short, being satisfied only with milk. Now, believe it or not, we are going to finish the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 3 before we leave today. So buckle up, we have to hit the gas. Verse 3. <laughs> Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul mentioned this back in chapter 1 of this letter, but he gets into the weeds now. One of the ways he knows that the Corinthians are immature milk drinkers is their factions. Remember, the Greek culture that the Corinthians inherited had lots of different philosophies and teachers. And many of these philosopher teachers traveled around and gathered followings and had their own schools of thought. It would have been normal for people to follow their preferred teacher. But it came, became more, about, more than simply being about preferring someone's style over another. The Corinthians, independent of their favorite teachers, were measuring each other based on who preferred whom to the extent that it began creating disunity in the church. When they did this, they weren't behaving like the spiritual person from chapter 2, they were behaving like milk-drinking people of flesh. Factions proved their immaturity. The fact that they couldn't love each other through their preferences and unify around core Christian beliefs showed that they were immature. Secondary matters distracted and divided them. The reason that secondary matters divided them was that their footing on the foundation of Jesus wasn't strong. And when our footing on that foundation isn't strong, when we don't know what is most important and which hills are worth dying on, every disagreement looks like a crisis demanding we draw hard lines. But when essential Christian beliefs are in place, folks raised in the free church can worship alongside those raised assemblies of God, who can worship alongside those raised Baptist, and you can be preached to by a recovering Catholic. There's enough of us here in this room that some of us are convinced Calvinists and are more than happy to explain why. Others of us are nudging our neighbor. What do Calvin and Hobbes have to do with church? <laughs> here in 1 Corinthians, in Romans 14, to a lesser extent in Acts chapters 10 and 15, Christians are granted the freedom to disagree with one another on what are called disputable matters. Particularly in Romans 14, Paul uses an example of what sorts of food people should feel free to eat or what sorts of holidays people want to observe. 
He lets them decide for themselves about that. What's most important, he teaches, is that the mature Christians, the ones whose faith will not be impacted by food or observing certain holidays, that these mature Christians don't inadvertently trip up the less mature Christians, those who do care about food and holidays, by exercising their freedom without considering the impact on their less mature church family. When we finished our milk and are committed to the foundations, secondary or disputable matters will not divide us. They'll just flavor us a little differently. Paul doesn't take pot shots at his fellow leaders, Apollos and Peter. He doesn't say, how dare you dirty, rotten Greeks prefer someone else? I founded your church. What he cares about is that the Christians don't divide with one another, one another over matters of preference. The Corinthians and we today must set our footing on the firm foundation of Jesus himself as we seek core convictions to unite around, not preferences to divide over. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Sometimes I try to tell my wife stuff. I know what you're thinking. That was my first mistake. So my wife's having a problem. She wants to talk about the problem. I'm like, you got to do A, B, C to solve your problem. She's like, I don't want you to solve my problem. I just want to say how I feel. See how quiet these husbands are? Yeah. Wise men, they understand. I have just dragged all of us into a minefield. Laugh a little too hard. Your wife's going to get you in the car on the way back. What was so funny back there? Later, my wife will share her same problem with one of you people. And you'll say, you've got to do A, B, C to solve your problem. And she says, yeah, that makes sense. I'll do that. <laughs> I told her that weeks ago. But I can't remind her that I told her that weeks ago, because if I do, my punishment shall be severe. Danny planted, Jill watered, God made it grow. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. Here's the point. God gives the growth. So mature leaders will be humble. Mature followers won't play favorites. Farmers can do all the right things in terms of creating the proper environment for growth. But they can't control the wind. Can't control rainfall. Can't control whatever's going on at the cellular level with the seeds. 
Some of the crop will grow taller and stronger than others. Some of the crop will be wilted from the start and need to be dug out. You might be a parent. Bring up your kids in church. Do all the quote-unquote right things in raising them. They don't realize how good they've got it. They just whine, Blah, can't we sleep in for once? Why do we have to go there? It's perhaps not until they get to college and meet a mentor five or ten years older that it finally all starts to click. You planted the mentor waters. God makes it grow. Paul then transitions into some imagery about building foundations. That'll be important in a moment. But for now, it's basically a different metaphor saying the same essential thing. Paul's role in the building process was to lay a foundation. Others would put up the wall, the roof, the whatever, and everyone of various trades still contributed to the building going up. Paul's saying the same thing about the role of church leaders. It's not up to us to make people grow. All we can do is be faithful to the work, regardless of where we stand in a person's overall process. This should drive all of us toward humility as we pray for God to give the growth. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through the fire. If you've ever done any kind of demolition work, you know that sometimes buildings are hiding some pretty weird stuff. And if you want a rabbit hole, a rabbit hole to fall down on the internet, there's plenty of folks who have made some interesting discoveries redoing their homes. One couple doing some remodeling in Wisconsin found a completely functional jacuzzi underneath the floor in their home office. A couple of years ago, a young woman in New York City frighteningly discovered a huge hole in the drywall behind her bathroom mirror that led to an entire other apartment that had been walled off and locked up. And in the same way that we might demolish a construction and find something unexpected behind some walls or under the floor, the Apostle Paul now talks about building our churches and our personal faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He uses the example of different kinds of building materials that will be revealed by fire on the capital D day. The Apostle Peter talks about this day in 2 Peter 3. Starting in verse 5, he says, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's referring to Noah's ark. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, once for water, now for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
this capital D day Paul talks about here is the same judgment day Peter is talking about. This refers to when Jesus will return, put an end to the world as we know it, and God will judge everyone. Let me say that again. God will judge everyone. But if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you have said yes to Jesus, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what bad you've done. It doesn't matter what good you should have done but didn't. You are not condemned. You are in Christ. You are a child of God. You are saved. You will enjoy eternal life with God in heaven. When you are judged, in the final analysis, God the Father will look at you. He will see Jesus. He will say, come in. But we still will have to stand before God. So what does Paul mean when he talks about fire burning stuff up? The building materials are a metaphor for how we live our lives. Judgment will reveal what materials we used to build our lives. Did we build using stuff that will endure the refiner's fire, like precious metals and stones? Or did we build with sticks and straw that will be burned up and consumed in a snap? Are we making eternal investments or temporary investments? Are we living off of milk? Paul says in verse 15 that if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. I've talked about this verse before here. I said it's possible to baseball slide into heaven with your butt on fire. We showed Wiley Coyote after he gets blown up, remember? I asked you, do you really want to meet Jesus looking all crispy like Wiley Coyote? Remember? In the same way that Paul said earlier that there's the unspiritual person who doesn't follow Jesus, the spiritual person who follows Jesus, and the fleshly person who knows Jesus and should know better but keeps drinking milk anyway, now he talks about spiritual maturity in terms of judgment. If you want to build a life that is essentially made of sticks and straw, you can. You can choose to not follow God's will for your life. You can ignore his leading. You can ignore his word. You can come to church 1.7 times per month. You can struggle with the same old things you've always struggled with. You can run on the hamster wheel and not enjoy victory over addictions and anger and whatever else has held you down in your life. You can. You can be a roller coaster, roller coaster Christian. You can stand before God, as we all will, and understand all the ways in which you missed out on what he had for you and all the people he wanted you to bless, all the good work that he wanted you to do. But God doesn't want that for us. What God wants to say is, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know about you, I don't want to drink milk forever. I want to live the kind of life that is a holy, pleasing offering to God, not out of fear of judgment, but in response to all that he has rescued me from.
verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Two things to say about this. First, the you here is plural, so it should be read like we're from down south, all y'all. We're all together, the church, God's temple. We tend as modern Americans to think in terms of I, me, mine. And it is true that we begin our Christian journey by making a personal profession of faith in Jesus, but it's not meant to live there. It's meant to expand out. One pastor said that Christianity came to take out words like I, me, and mine and replace them with words like we, us, and ours. The second point is to understand that this is a sober warning. The church is God's temple. If someone thinks they're going to destroy God's temple, they've got another thing coming. When the Apostle Paul still went by the name Saul, he was a persecutor of the Christian church. And when Jesus met him on the road and blinded him, Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Jesus had already ascended to heaven by this point, but he identifies himself so closely with the church, with all of us, that he said persecuting the church is akin to persecuting Jesus himself. I get it. Sometimes the church, as an institution, is annoying. Sometimes people at church are annoying. And if you've never been annoyed by someone at church, just stick around for a while. But the church's failures don't change the fact that God loves the church. So don't try to destroy what God loves. Or Jesus might destroy the person you are, turn you into a pastor. Say the same thing to you that he said about Saul, the persecutor, right before he became Paul the Apostle. Jesus said of him, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Back to 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Forcing ourselves to choose between one legitimate Christian leader or another is like forcing ourselves to choose between whether we'd like to lose our hearing or our sight. But nobody's asking us to choose between our hearing or our sight. God was not asking the Corinthians to choose between Paul, Apollos, or Peter. So we have to ask, why not all three? Why not gain from Paul and Apollos and Peter? The Corinthians' problem was that they came out of a culture where people were always measuring themselves against each other. People will always try to find ways of figuring out who's better. I'm from the Twin Cities. Where are you from? I'm from Edina. Okay. All right. But there's no reason to do this. 
Paul says. It's not valuable. It's not loving. It's pitting us against each other. And we're not supposed to be measuring each other by the worldly standards or the cultural wisdom. Paul returns to what he calls fool's wisdom. This is real wisdom, reliant upon the real source of wisdom, God's word, as its central guiding star. It's no surprise that if the Corinthians defined wisdom as the world defined it, they would continue fracturing over any little thing. Worship team, you guys can start making your way up. So what Paul is really saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is this. Stop adopting the world's version of wisdom. Stop letting the world's version of wisdom dictate how you live your life. The world was still leading the Corinthians in too many ways. The world's definition of the good life was still guiding how they thought, still telling them, still telling us today that we should define good and evil on our own terms rather than on God's terms. But we can't define good and evil on our terms. We don't have the right to do it. And even the most secular person who follows the logic to its end must admit that we don't have the capacity to do it. So if we commit to living within the boundaries of God's wisdom, not the world's, we look to them like fools. So we're going to look like fools. But Paul says that's okay because we have everything we need in Jesus. When we locate our value in Jesus, when we live according to his wisdom, when we submit to God's authority to define good and evil, when we move beyond milk to solid spiritual food, then we will be planting our feet on our firm foundation to endure all the things that this life will throw at us. We can be secure in this. For as Paul said, all things are ours, and we are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Our Father, you are good. As we seek to live out what your servant Paul called foolish wisdom, give us favor with those who don't yet understand who you are. May our foolish wisdom bless those around us, who think this world is nothing but dog-eat-dog. And in the ways we are operating under the world's vision of wisdom, convict us by your Holy Spirit to lead the renewed lives you've called us into for your kingdom and for your glory, and that many people will be rescued because of our witness of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we ask all of this. Amen.